Well, good morning. morning. Nice to see all your smiling faces today. Got everyone enjoying their week? Oh, Oh, man. You guys need to get out more. (laughs) This is gorgeous outside. Hey, and uh, if you didn't see him, uh, Tony and Teresa are here, so make sure you give him a big noogie. Tell him you love him. So, where'd he go? There he is. Hey, you get to sit in the back. Is that weird? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, hey, let me just give you uh, one more plug and encouragement to come out on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock for our worship night. It's going to be an incredible time. And uh, there's not much better than praising the Lord together. Amen? Amen. So uh, don't, miss that, don't miss that opportunity. So, Well, it's good to see you all again. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Brandon McCaughey. Uh, the new lead pastor here at Cornerstone, I guess I'm not that new, still new. I've been here since January, so some of you are coming back and we're like, who's that guy? He got taller. <laughs> I, I got to do it when I can. I just love him so. Uh, we have the same haircut though, so, you know, I could see where there's confusion. <laughs> uh, well, uh. We are in the book of Titus, and so let me invite you, church, to open your Bibles this morning. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and our ushers would love to bring you a copy of God's Word. If you got out of the house with that one, just put your hand up. They will bring you one, and we can study God's Word together. So this is week five of our seven-week series. we got a couple more. We're going to be in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2. And, you know, it's been a little uh, heavy-handed as of late because, you know, Paul is a kind of guy that doesn't really pull any punches. But I, 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 I told you that today is the turning. He, he gives us some great encouragement today, so I'm really excited about these verses. And uh, Paul, if, in case you missed it, has been writing to his traveling companion, Titus, uh, who he left back on the island of Crete. Uh, and his goal was that he would put what remained into order and appoint every old elders in every town as I directed you. You see, Paul and Titus had been traveling on the island of Crete preaching the gospel and they planted churches all over the island. But false teachers had come in and infiltrated these churches, teaching these believers that if they wanted to be faithful followers of Jesus, And what they needed to do was add to their faith these Jewish myths, these man-made commandments that weren't taught in Scripture. They were teaching legalism, asceticism, as a way to please the Lord and have a vibrant faith. Paul tells Titus how important it was for him to appoint elders, men with biblical character, in order to teach only what accords with sound doctrine and then to silence any false teachers that were still there in these churches. Now Paul writes this letter because he knows that right doctrine is what leads to holy living. Having a right set of beliefs is the framework that you and I need to live a faithful gospel-centered life. Any deviation or addition to the truth of Scripture has disastrous effects on our walk with Jesus Christ. 
Now, last week, Paul reminded Titus of the importance of preaching to each of the specific groups within the church. The old men, the old women, the younger men, the younger women, and the bond servants. Now, now, it was very clear last week that I'm not telling you what category you're in. That's between you and the Lord, right? You can decide. But Paul believed that each Christ follower should live in a way, in accordance with God's word, in a way that adorns the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that phrase. It says our lives should be a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of all that Christ has done for you. Now this week, Paul is going to remind Titus of what that gospel message actually is. And what the grace of God does for the believer. And how it gives us a, a devoted hope in the promises our God has made to us in Christ Jesus. So with that, church, let me ask you to stand. Uh, let's uh, read God's word off the screen together in one voice. And then we will pray and begin our time together. The words will be on the screen for you. This is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It teaches us to say, oh, this is a different version. <laughs> Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Father God, we... We want to pause and just thank you for who you are. That you are great and glorious and beyond comprehensive and, and yet you stooped down, gave us your son Jesus that we might know you and be in right relationship with you. So I pray for each heart in this room today that by your Holy Spirit's power you would teach us through your word how to be more like Jesus. And we ask this not so that we can get any credit, but that, so that you can receive all the glory. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated, church. Thank you. So Crete was an interesting place to live in the first century. We, we've heard of kind of some of their exploits so far. But the non-Christians in Crete held to some peculiar beliefs that were strange for even pagans. For example, the Cretans claimed that the god Zeus was born a man on their island. I don't know how they figured that, but this is what they were telling people. That he was born on Crete, that he attained godhood by exchanging favors with the people of the island. And somehow that elevated him to this god status. And then they believed that he died... And was buried on the island. I don't know how a god dies, but apparently Zeus did. Now, very few Cretans actually believed this. 
But the lie was told by the Cretan citizens to all the tourists coming into town so that they would go visit Zeus's grave on the island. So they were schemers. They were, they were looking to make a little extra coin off this myth about Zeus. Now, most Cretan beliefs were based on these kinds of lies, a stretching of the truth, which inevitably created this society that we hear about now that was known for being a bunch of liars. Now, the Cretans who were converted to Christianity were told by Paul, don't be behave like your fellow Cretans. Honesty, self-control, faithfulness, these were characteristics they were told to possess. And they're the same qualities we are being called to live out today. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't saying that as a new believer, we must have these godly characteristics the moment we get saved, right? Don't you wish it was that way, though? Like you get saved and then just, whew, holy, perfect. We are becoming holy. We are being made into the image of Christ. It's a process that we call sanctification. And it takes our entire life. So Paul believes and is, is entreating Titus to teach right doctrine to the church. Because holding those right beliefs is what helps us on that journey of holiness. You can't grow in holiness without first having a framework that is grounded on the truth. Pastor Brian Chapel writes this, he says, resting on God's grace does not relieve us of our holy obligations. Rather, it should enable us to fulfill them. We pursue holiness because God's grace has appeared, bringing us salvation and enabling us to grow in Christ's likeness. Can you grow in holiness apart from the grace and mercy of your Lord? No, absolutely not. Your tendency will be to fall into your sin nature. Now look what Paul writes there in verses 11 and 12. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. See, gratitude for what the Lord has done for us should be our motivation for pursuing holiness. And it's only the Holy Spirit's power that sanctifies us. We are becoming holy because God has given us the precious gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and transforms us over our lifetime into the image of Christ. Holiness is one of the fruits of our salvation. It is not what redeems us. We don't get made holy and then God says, oh, now you're saved. You are saved and then you become holy. And Paul tells us that God is our Savior who is the one who makes us holy. And our response to that gift is then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Holy living is our response to the gift of salvation. We begin to live rightly because of God's grace towards us. And each time the Lord forgives us, we grow more and more thankful for his mercy. Amen? I don't know about you, but there's just those times where you're like, yeah, Lord, I did it again. 
And then you know. You, you know, you, you killed the guilt for a little while and the shame, and then, and then you realize, no, I've been forgiven. And I don't know about you, but my heart just overflows in gratitude for those moments. Because he's so faithful to forgive. His mercies are new every single morning. And I love that truth. Our God is not required to pardon us. It, there's no, nothing that says, you know, I'm going to pardon you this many times and then that's it. But he does it because he loves us. D.L. Moody said this. He said, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months. That sounds like a challenge. Or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. This is a beautiful thought because we don't have to store up God's grace. Because it's not going to run out. You're not going to get to your quota of grace and then God says, well, that's all you needed. That's all you get. No, his grace is sufficient for the day and for the next day and for the next day and on. And such an overflow of his mercy and grace in our lives should encourage us and remind us that we have been called to live holy lives. Now, on a side note, Paul says that God's Grace has brought salvation for all people. And I, I just want to clarify that phrase because some have mistakenly seen that as, well, God saves everyone ultimately. But he's not talking about some sort of universalism. What Paul means is that salvation, the salvation of the Lord is offered freely to anyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, that prayer of repentance is the one prayer that God always answers. If you ask for forgiveness from your sins, guess what? Forgiven. There is no holding back on that request. So Paul is telling us that Jesus didn't come just to save a select few. He came to redeem all people. Anyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord which Revelation 7-9 tells us includes people from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. Now Paul has been teaching Titus that the right thinking is this key to right living. If you haven't got that fact yet, write it at the top of your study notes. This is my premise for the entire series. Right thinking, right beliefs is the key to holy and right living. He teaches the Roman church something similar when he reminds them in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul's connection between proper doctrine and holy living is not a new idea found in the New Testament. Paul repeats it several times throughout the New Testament, but we also see it in the Old Testament. For example, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, begin with this assertion that Yahweh is God. That he's the Lord and Savior of Israel. That is the truth 
that begins than the Ten Commandments. If you don't hold to that truth, the Ten Commandments, following the Ten Commandments is irrelevant. Because it is only because God is Lord and Savior that you can even keep those commandments. Keeping the commandments was and is impossible for anyone who does not first believe that Yahweh is the one true God. Now once we've been saved, we've been given a new heart, right? The old stony heart is cast off and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And with that beautiful gift of regeneration comes a new mind that is able to comprehend God's truth. How many of you, when you were non-believers, like before you got saved, read the word of God and you were like, this doesn't make any sense. I just don't get it. You remember those days? Some of you were saved when you were really little and, you know, maybe you couldn't read. I don't know. But for you that got saved when you were an adult, there was a time where you looked at God's word and you just were like, this is nonsense. And I hear this from non-believers all the time. They, they struggle reading God's word. And it's because they haven't had their mind renewed by the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. But once we are saved, the Holy Spirit indwells us and we read the word of God with new eyes. It's like a light bulb clicks on and you're like, oh, it's not so hard after all. Not only that, but with the gift of salvation, we are given a desire to do God's will. Right? Your desire changes in that you want to please him. You want to serve him. You want to give your life because he gave you his. This is in Titus 2.12, this is what Paul is telling Titus this new desire will look like. He says it includes the rejection of ungodliness and worldly appetites. Right? Doesn't, doesn't mean that you don't still struggle with some of those things. But you learn to put them off and to cast them aside. See, Paul is saying that the entire Christian life is learning how to turn from what is unhealthy and unholy to what Scripture says is holy and good and right. Pursuing all that the Lord tells us is righteous, whether or not the world agrees. This is what we call a life of repentance. It's not perfection. It's saying, all right, Lord, today I'm going to grow in your likeness. I'm going to start living this way. Or, hey, somebody called me out on my behavior. I'm going to change it. I'm going to put it off and I'm going to seek what you say is right. Repentance is a continual turning away from sin towards the things that make us more like Jesus. Paul tells us we are, we are to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and work towards these goals of self-control, uprightness, and godliness. And the renunciation of ungodliness and worldly desires is something that must be done on a daily basis. You're not going to resist temptation one day and then next day you're like, well, I did that, so I'm good. No, the temptation is going to come back harder. And then the next day it will be even harder. You've got you to gotta stay disciplined until the, the enemy just says, I give up with that one. They're too stubborn. It can only, this, this sort of discipline can only be accomplished because of the grace of God in your lives. 
through our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Through the community of believers that is a gift to you and I to pick each other up and help us walk this journey of faith together. So let me ask you, church family, are there any ungodly behaviors you've been participating in that, that need to be brought to the Lord in repentance? You, you don't have to shout them out. The first step is recognizing that these unholy desires, these attitudes, these behaviors don't line up with what Scripture says. And when that's brought to your attention and that Holy Spirit pricks your conscience and says, hey, you know, it's time to make some changes. Then your next step is say to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, forgive me. Change my heart. Soften it. Make me more like Jesus. Take this burden of sin away. And church, if you make that prayer to the Lord, forgiveness and peace are waiting for you. You can simply ask him to forgive and that promise is always true. You are forgiven. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you overcome it. You know, the Holy Spirit isn't some just indwelling thing we have that just goes along where we go. He's there to help us walk this life of faith. And I think often we forget about that. That gift. And so make it your habit to say during the day, hey, Holy Spirit, I'm being tempted. Help me overcome this temptation. Or, hey, this is right in front of me. I'm struggling. Holy Spirit, help me walk in righteousness. See what the Lord does with that. It's a good habit to practice. Now let's move on to verses 13 and 14. Paul writes these incredibly beautiful words. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now some critics of Christianity would argue that Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good at all. Have you heard that one? That we just, we got our heads in the cloud, we're waiting for, you know, this Jesus guy to return. And then we kind of forget about all the things going on here in this life. Now this isn't, this isn't the call of Christianity. Uh, it is to wait with an expectant hope, but it is to live in the here and now. In fact, Paul tells us in Titus 2, 12 and 13 that a self-controlled, upright and godly life always goes hand in hand with a waiting for Christ's return. Or as Paul writes in verse 13, a waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that church is going to be an incredible day. Sin and death will be destroyed. Our bodies will be resurrected and made new. Sorrow, pain, all those things will be gone. And the Lord will make his home among us forever. Now how can we not keep that promise as our great hope? Firmly fixed. Because sometimes when you look around, it's easy to get discouraged, right? Because this world's pretty messed up. It's broken. 
even when you look inwardly, sometimes it's more discouraging because you're like, why is my heart still so wicked? But there is a blessed hope, this promise of Christ returning, that this isn't how it's going to stay. That you don't have to worry about all the, the horrible things in this world that are going on. Because they will one day be gone forever. And the reality of that promise is that we are given this life so that the Lord is, can prepare us for that day. By transforming us in the here and now, in this present evil age. So that we could be a light to the nations of who he is and what his promises are all about. Paul tells us that he makes us zealous passionate for good works, knowing that as we live a holy life, we make the purity that Christ has purchased for us a reality in this present day. And that gives us a brief taste of the sweetness that is to come. That your holy living is a testimony of the promise of God to come and restore all things. And you and I need to to have our eyes fixed on that resurrection hope so that we never become weary of doing what is good. As we long for our Savior's return, our desire to taste his glory should grow. And as that grows, we pursue holiness all the more. So I will tell you, church, it is important to think about the returning of Christ on a regular basis. But not to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But to be so heavily, heavenly minded that you do earthly good. And that you live in a way that exalts and glorifies the promise of our king. Now as, a, as an aside, I'll uh, give you a little theological snippet here. The doctrine of the Trinity is found in a lot of scripture passages throughout the Bible. But one of the most significant is here in Titus 2.13. So if you ever get in a discussion with a friend about who doesn't believe in the Trinity, you can bring him here to Titus chapter 2.13. And Paul says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The titles God and Savior are both applied to Jesus. Making this verse one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture that Jesus Christ is not just Savior but also God. Doesn't get more overt than this one. There's a few other good ones, but this one's real good. So Paul has reminded us in this passage that Jesus died and was resurrected in order to defeat sin and death and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And he's encouraged us with this truth that one day Jesus will come again to fulfill all his promises to us. So remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus and looking forward to the renewal of all things gives us motivation to live holy, to be zealous to do good works. This is Christianity 101 according to Paul, right? Because he tells Titus and these elders to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. He's saying, look, these are the key elements of the faith. Don't overlook them. Don't let people tell you that they're not true. Because these foundational things 
are worth having arguments about. Now, we shouldn't argue with each other over the silly things, right? When is Christ returning? You don't, nobody knows. He's going to come back. That's where we can stop, right? But these doctrines, these truths about who Jesus is, what he came to do, what his plan and promises are, those are ones we need to stand firm on. To not make any sidetracks with them. We need to say these are the truths and we're willing to rebuke and correct one another when we divert from these teachings. And you know, we don't, we don't like that talk in our culture. You know, everyone's entitled to their posi- position, their opinion. But the reality is, if you hold a position that doesn't put Jesus Christ as Lord, if that's your belief, what does your future hold? Are you willing to allow your friends in the community, your coworkers, your family members that don't know Jesus, are you, are you willing to let them hold those false teachings so that you can appease the relationship? At what cost? And Paul is saying, look, declare these things as true. Declare them. That's a bold statement. He's not, he's not saying, well, you know, if you get around to it, or if, you know, if the time is right, then say it. No, he's saying, be, be bold. Be faithful in saying what Jesus Christ has done for you. And allow that truth to penetrate the hearts of those who don't yet know him. Let no one disregard you. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 is also an important parallel passage. And if you remember, 1 Timothy was written to Timothy as he pastored in Ephesus. Titus was written to Titus as he pastored on Crete. But 1 Timothy chapter 4 demonstrates along with Titus 2.15 the significance of this idea of teaching about Jesus Christ. The teaching office in the church. Paul tells Timothy this. He says, command and teach these things. He's even more forceful here. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He's saying live out your faith in a way that proclaims the gospel of Jesus. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. I don't know about you, church, but as a pastor, these verses remind me of the gravity and the responsibility that we have on this stage to proclaim the truth of God's word. See, all believers have been given the responsibility to proclaim who Jesus is. But the church's appointed elders have been given specific authority to teach and protect biblical doctrine, to encourage and exhort other believers to follow it and to rebuke any false teachers that come in and try and get you to go a different direction. 
Now, this authority doesn't come from a position. I don't have authority over you because I'm a pastor. In fact, I have no authority over you at all. I'm a servant. But this has authority over you. And if I read this, then the authority is over you. Not because of who I am, but because of who our God is. And I think that's really an important point to remember. These positions aren't significant because they're positions of power. They're positions of service. And the authority does not come from here, but from here. Any teaching that violates scripture, on the other hand, should be rejected by you. And you're welcome to drag me out into the parking lot. Because regardless of a person's position of authority, no one should use God's word to abuse the people. Or, or to have false gain or, or to exert their authority over you. That is not what scripture is intended for. And we are given this example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 16 who, who searched the scriptures after Paul preached to them. After they heard the word of God, they, they searched the scriptures to see if what they were saying was true. This is your responsibility as the body. Now on the flip side, Paul is also telling Titus that Christians must receive biblical teaching from their leaders even when it's difficult to hear. Even when you might disagree because you've been influenced by culture. And it's your responsibility to say, Lord, is that from you? And am I wrong? And have I been believing something that the culture has taught me is true? Or is this what your word says? Leaders must be committed to only teach the truth of God's word and never to let anyone convince them to do otherwise. Sometimes, it's, again, it's difficult to receive the teaching of God's word depending on the passage. Some are easier than others. But especially if we're in bondage to sin. But it's important for each one of us, before we walk into this room, to say, Holy Spirit, teach me today. Show me who you are. Speak to my heart and my mind, regardless of what this guy's saying. And help me to test it against the word of God and let it change my life. This is the call for each person that comes through these doors. To study the word on your own so that you can recognize when what I'm saying doesn't line up. I hope that doesn't happen regularly, by the way. A church is only as strong as each individual is strong. So it's a good question to ask ourselves have I been coming here as a spectator or am I here to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness? What is your motivation for walking into this building? Is it to become holy as Christ is holy? Or, you know, when I, when I was a teenager, I used to go to church because the girls were cute. I mean, the Lord still used that for his glory, thankfully. But what is your motivation for coming in these doors? Is it to check a box? Is it to feel good? Because the music's great? 
because we have good fellowship? Or is it so that you can be transformed by the holy word of God into the image of Christ? Our great hope in the returning of Jesus calls each one of us to live in light of the hope of the gospel. So that by our very lives, God is glorified not just in this place, but in this community, in our workplaces, in our families. And we are to take the desire he gives us to be more like him and live our lives by daily rejecting what the world says we need to be doing and instead doing what is good. Keeping God's word and the hope of Christ returning ever in front of us. That's what keeps us steady and on course. It helps us run the race well. Which means that each of us need to keep God's word in our laps, in our faces, constantly on our hearts and minds. To remind ourselves, as the psalmist says, that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat. Nope, I did that wrong. I said it before church and I was all, let's try it again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners. Why did I think that was something different? Nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. On his law he meditates day and night. It's a beautiful promise and a gift from the Lord for each one of us. And I would encourage you, church, this morning, if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do from here. I want to live a holy life. I want to be transformed. I want to I change the way I've been living and glorify Christ with all that I am. Please come talk to us. Find me, find one of the staff, find one of the elders. And, and we want to walk with you. I will disciple you every week if we need. We are here to serve you and to help each one here walk in Christ's footsteps. And again, I've said it before, but we can't do it on our own. You can't walk this journey of faith with just you and Jesus. He gave you his body as a gift. Don't forget it. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump into communion. Father God, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the precious gift of your word. We thank you for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for each heart here that we would have a blessed hope in your promises and your returning that would encourage us to live holy lives that you might be glorified in this community by the lives that we live in submission to you. Lord, and we... We all confess that we're going to fail and struggle with this on occasion. And the road doesn't always get easier, especially when the enemy throws our sin and our past in our face. But Lord, help us to be a people who cling to your truth, to your promises, to the hope that we have in you. That you are a faithful God, even when we are not. We praise you. And we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen.